0: Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors, a strategic communications company. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Dewan Jordan. Dewan is the co CEO of Launch a local nonprofit focused on helping entrepreneurs underrepresented in entrepreneurship. But her story doesn't start there. Dewan, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about your compassionate heart and your persistence when it comes to helping others, let me ask, what's in your morning cup?
1: This is probably not the best answer, but most mornings, nothing. (laughs) I'm not a big breakfast person and I don't normally have anything to drink. But when I do have something in my cup, It is cereal. Cereal? It's cereal, Mike. You don't do coffee? I'm a fake coffee drinker. How's that fake? It's fake because I have more sugar than I do coffee, (laughs) (laughs) more creamer than I do coffee. And I'll try it every now and then if I need to pick me up, but I'm not a really big coffee drinker.
0: See, I'm a decaf guy, so most people call that fake.
1: I don't understand decaf. I've never understood that, but it makes sense to you and others.
0: I used to drink caffeine. Uh Uh-huh. I've cut caffeine out for the most part, and I love the taste of coffee. So the aroma and the taste is what gets me going. I take back my judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you this then. What kind of cereal?
1: I like Fruit Loops, and I like mm, Golden
0: Grahams. Golden Grahams?
1: I like Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but I'm a big cereal person.
0: You and Jerry Seinfeld. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome to My Morning Cup. I'm really excited to have you here. I know we've tried to connect on this a couple times, but I got to know you through Launch, and I wanted to talk about your journey to success and where you are now as the co-CEO of Launch, but you didn't start there. I know you were born in Chattanooga, but then you moved to Indiana. Why don't you talk a little bit about how you got started growing up in Indiana and then how you led to where you are today?
1: Okay, well... Um, as you said, I am from Chattanooga. My entire family is here. When I was in the third grade, my father—he's a pastor—and he was called to pastor a church in Fort Wayne, and so we moved up there when I was in the third grade. And I ended up going to Snyder High School. And during that time, I—they had a program for cosmetologists. I had all of my credits, and so when I got to be a junior. I started going to school half a day for cosmetology and half a day for my academics. And um, when I graduated with my diploma, I also had my cosmetology license. Wow. And my plan for that was not to um, do hair for a living, but to make extra money while I was in college. And that is how I made money while I was in college.
0: So you were a student in college. Were you living in the dorm? Yes. And you were doing hair for people in the dorm? Mike, I did everything.
1: I did (laughs) hair. I've made food and sold plates until I almost got spelled for setting off the fire alarm from a fry daddy. (laughs) You're making food in your dorm room? Yeah, selling food. And so, yeah, I used to make money. I, I just, I've always been a
0: entrepreneur. What instilled that? Because it, I mean, when I went to college, I was more about where are we going tonight?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just something I've always seen. It's just always been in me. Um, When I was in high school, I'm actually going to release a book soon. And I have a chapter in there that talks about this. When I was in high school, I started a candy store. And it was so successful that the school store started losing money. So you were the competition. I was the competition, and the competition almost got me kicked out of school. Well,
0: that's one way to end
1: competition. (laughs) Yes, yes. And so, you know, I talk about that. And I mean, it's just always been in me. Like, I like to serve people. I like to make money. But I've never been motivated by money. Right. It's always the excitement of serving others.
0: And that's the thing I noticed since I've known you, which has been a couple years now, that you really have a servant's heart. And that's what drives you for the most part. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Indiana, because I read something in doing a little research. You said something that you had a life-defining moment. Can you talk about that, or do you want to talk about
1: that? Yes, I, I'm I'm open to talking about that. So when I was 12 years old, my brother and I, my older brother TJ, um, we were on our way to piano lessons. And like kids, we were arguing over the front seat to the car.
0: Oh, I've never done that with Ugh. my siblings. <laughs>
1: Well, don't do it the way I did it. But we were arguing over the front seat. And um, when we got to piano practice, I said, I hope you get shot in the head and die. Oh, no. Yeah. And, you know, I was 12 years old. I regret those words to this day. But about three hours after I said that, we were waiting on our mother to pick us up from piano lessons. And a fight broke out on the inside. They put the kids outside. Um, They started shooting. One bullet came through the wall. Another came um, through the window and hit my brother in the head. And I saw my brother die on the YMCA floor that day. And I felt like it was because of my words. And I am a woman of faith. My family, um, we are faith- we believe in God and we believe in the power of prayer. And God revived him, you know, and he's a miracle. Yeah. He still lives with a bullet in his head to this day.
0: Oh, my goodness. Um, they
1: say he will never see again. He was the only one in our family up to a couple of years ago with 2020 vision. They say he'll never walk walks everything they said he wouldn't be he is everything they said he would be he
0: isn't that absolutely is life-changing how does that drive you now you came through that experience and, and I would imagine having said those words you know all the, the different levels of responsibility associated with but how does that continue to drive you today
1: well it's a big part of my purpose and why I do what I do I realized that if I could use my words to speak death then surely I can use them to speak life. And so that's what I choose to do. My purpose in life is to leave people, places and things better than they were when I first encountered it. And I do a lot of that through my words as well. I started a life coaching business. I actually went through the lunch program and I started a life coaching and consulting business. And I that's what I do. You know, even when I'm not trying, I'm an encourager, I'm a motivator, I try to inspire
0: people. Yeah. So you're in Indiana and obviously uh, through this event, but then you go to school at the University of Indiana. You got your B.A. in criminal justice. Then you got your master's at Indiana Wesleyan. Talk through that path through your high school on up through there. I know you were selling stuff in in your (laughs) dorm room,
1: doing hair. So when I went to Indiana University, my goal was to study, to be an attorney. And they didn't have a pre-law program. And so I ended up taking psychology. And I remember in my first psychology class, they started showing the bones in the head and talking all this medical stuff. And I said, this is not for me. (laughs) And so instead of going and changing or dropping the class, I dropped the whole major. (laughs) And I said, I want to do criminal justice. Mm -hmm. Um, I had grown up. In Indiana. And my father, we had a really bad gang issue around the time that I was growing up in the 90s there. And my father started a program actually a year before my brother got shot to help gang members and to get young people off the streets and to give them something positive to do. And so I had grown up, you know, seeing so much. By the time I went to college, I had seen so many of our who we call brothers and sisters and friends in the neighborhood, pass away you know, or be killed and murdered. And so I wanted to do something to help. And so criminal justice was the way that I ended up going. Graduated with my degree and became a probation officer. I was the youngest and the youngest black female to ever be a probation officer for that department. And I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. What did
0: you love about it?
1: I love being able to help people. Like, I'm just not, I'm not a punitive person, which is why I ended up leaving the profession. I i felt like sometimes, to be honest, that sometimes I may have been more of an enabler than I was helping because I always saw the best in people. And um, I still do, and I believe that. But sometimes you see more in people or want more for people than they want for themselves. And so I really enjoyed doing it because I had the opportunity to not, look at the punitive side, you know, before I made a decision on whether I had to violate and send someone to prison, I looked at the whole family. I looked at the children, what would happen to the children, what would happen to their home, what would happen to their job. I looked at all of that. And so I did that. And so around that time, my family had moved back to Chattanooga because my grandparents were getting older, my mother and my father's parents. And you were still in? in I was still in Indiana, yes. Yes. And I did not come back with them. I was working and I was in a relationship at that time and I chose not to come back. That relationship did not work out. And so I ended up going to grad school. And honestly, it was just something to distract me, to keep me busy while I was going through that journey. And I ended up going and getting my master's in science management, actually, which is a business degree. And my father said, you know, hey. He had come back to Chattanooga and they had asked him, the mayor that was running at the time, had asked him if he would start the Stop the Madness program here because he had heard about the impact that we had made up there. And so I came here to run the program.
0: So your dad started Stop the Madness in Indiana. And when he moved here, the mayor at the time, and I would imagine that was probably Ron Littlefield that encouraged him to start it here. How much of an influence did your dad's vocation have on you?
1: Oh, it was everything. It was everything. Um, Like I said, he's a pastor. And so I've always saw him serve, serving the community, serving the church, serving everyone that he touched, our family. And so it was just instilled in me. It wasn't even something that he talked about all the time. I just saw it in action. For me, I just remember like all of the kids used to hang out at our house. Like we had the house.
0: Was yours the house that everyone <laughs> Our went house was in the
1: neighborhood that everyone came to. We put a basketball goal up and I remember we couldn't even get in our driveway. They would look at us like, what do you want? When we tried <laughs> to pull in the driveway because it would be so many kids out there. And so just seeing the way that he served the community and, um, he had a lot of challenges and I did not want that, but somehow my path led me that way. And I remember growing up how whenever our phone would ring in the middle of the night to tell us that, you know, somebody else was murdered or whenever you heard someone was shot, he would always say my stomach just gets in the knot. And I remember I began to have that same feeling once I started doing Stop the Madness. And I really was able to see like his journey and the path and, you know, the impact that it has on your life.
0: That's got to be a tremendous effect not a lot of people can identify with Mm -hmm. because that telephone ringing triggers something in you. And most people aren't getting that call. So I could imagine while you have a desire to do that, there's probably also a desire to, there's another way I can serve. Yes. And how is that?
1: Well, I serve wherever I can, wherever there's a need. I just naturally, you know, divert to that direction. So I left stopped the Madness while well, I transitioned out. I did not want to leave. I thought I would be doing it for the rest of my life. I really did. And um, God just started saying, you know, it's time to do something else and moving me in a different direction. And I didn't want to do it. And he made it so uncomfortable for me until I didn't have a choice. <laughs> and so I went through the lunch program, started the business, and I was helping people through the life coaching. And people were coming to me for business when I didn't want to be in the business scene. I want to be in the life coaching. But when I realized like how many people still needed assistance and I realized that most people coming to me for business, the issue wasn't even business. It had something to do with life.
0: Yeah. They all kind of go together. So what year did you come back? 2006?
1: Yes. December, 2006.
0: And when you decided to come back. You decided, you know what, I've got an entrepreneurial spirit. I'm going to go through the launch program. Or how did all that come about?
1: Well, Stop the Madness.
0: Uh, so you came back yeah, to work Yeah, I came and back st- to run that program. Okay. And how long did that go?
1: I did that for over 10 years. Over 10 years before I transitioned out. Um, and once I transitioned out, I started that business. Um, Hal came to me. and Hal Bowling. Asked, Hal Bowling. He asked me if I would come and work as a director of business support. And I said, no, <laughs> I said no in the beginning.
0: I think you've told Hal no a couple times on a few things.
1: <laughs> yes, but I was so glad that, you know, my no eventually turned into a yes. Yeah. And it was many reasons that I said no. Some was fear. In the beginning, it was no because I had worked for myself for so long and I didn't want to work for anybody. And I also, I really believed in my business. That was the time that online coaching was coming into play. A lot of people weren't doing it. And I thought I was gonna be a millionaire, Mike. I did in like a week because everybody (laughs) on social media was becoming millionaires.
0: (laughs) At least that's the way it looks on social (laughs) media. That's what they say. Yeah.
1: And it did work out that way, and so I ended up doing the director of business support part time. And then five months later, the pandemic hit, and I remember getting calls and people who were desperate trying to save their businesses. And I said, you know what? I'm I'm at home. And all of these people, I'm working full-time anyway, all of these people need assistance and getting resources out there to them. And I went full-time, and I haven't looked back.
0: What was it he said, or what was it that changed in your life that you finally said, "Okay, I want to do this? Well, first of all, I wasn't making any money. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's just be honest. (laughs) I wasn't making much money. And um, I made up my mind that I'm going to start doing things that scare me. And I started thinking about all of the things that I was afraid of or I was uncomfortable with that I did. And once I did it, it was like became easy. And I remember when I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, can I do this? Am I the one for the job?
0: Challenge yourself.
1: Yes. And um, I decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to step out on faith. I'm going to step out even in the midst of my fear. And I'm going to try this
0: what a bold way to be. I admire that. I mean, I'm a chicken. (laughs) I want to do the things I know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And most people are that way. I was that way, but I've been doing it so much more since I did that. And, um, it's so many challenges that I've taken on so many things I've said yes to that I normally would say no to since I started that path of doing it afraid.
0: So besides launch, what's an example of something that you took on that scared you, but you knew you had to challenge yourself and go ahead and do it?
1: Last year, there was a thing that kept popping up on Instagram, and it was an ad, and I kept seeing it for the Great American Speak-Off, which is put on by Pete Vargas and Grant Cardone, and it's like a American Idol, but it's for speakers. And it kept popping up, and I would look at it, and I would roll on past it. And something kept just saying, try it, try it. And I applied and I said, you know what, if they pick me, then, you know, I'll go. And it ended up being where you could pay um, money to make sure you guarantee yourself an audition. And so I went to Atlanta by myself and um, I auditioned and I did not make it. And so they had another virtual session a couple weeks later. And so I Applied for that. And I said, I'm not paying to guarantee an audition. If I get on here and get on and get an interview, I'll do it. And so I had an interview and I auditioned for it and I ended up making it to the second round, but they didn't pick me. And so they told the people who didn't get to audition that they could submit a video you know, if um, they didn't get a chance to audition the second time, and I said, you know what, I'm gonna submit it anyway. <laughs> for you. What are they gonna do? Tell me no again? <laughs> and I submitted it, and I got a call back saying we would like you to come compete in Miami for the semifinals. And I was terrified, Mike. Yeah, I was terrified. I mean, I was standing next to people who speak on a daily basis, like professionally. Professional
0: speakers are part of a speakers bureau.
1: Yes, and so that was very challenging for me, but Literally, when I opened up my mind and said, you know, just try it and do it afraid, like so many doors opened up for me.
0: Yeah. Did you ever have a fear of public speaking like most people do, or is that something that you were always comfortable with?
1: It's not something I've always been comfortable with. And even now, I'm not fully comfortable with it. I do a lot of speaking. I enjoy speaking only because of the impact that I can make on people through my message and my story. When I was a little girl, I had a speech impediment. I have had and have a list. I always felt different. I would get pulled out of class to go take speech lessons. And I remember just sitting there for like an hour, seemed just doing oh, the S sound yeah. <laughs> while other kids are playing. And I'm like, come get me during math. Don't pull me out. <laughs> recess!" <laughs> and so I just remember, um, you know, that. And I think that that started it because I don't even think I realized I had a speech impediment at that time.
0: Well, how would you know? Because it's, yeah. it's the way you spoke.
1: Yeah, and so that's something that's always stuck with me. Even now, I'm very cognizant when I'm speaking to slow down so that it doesn't show.
0: Go back a little bit on that. So you're a young girl, and you're being pulled out of class to do speech lessons. How does that affect you as a kid in terms of self-confidence? Because particularly like now with President Biden, there's a lot of emphasis on speech impediments and how he overcame his. How does that affect you as a kid? Did it make you feel different? Or
1: You know what, it did, but it wasn't even primarily that the school that I went to, my mom was a teacher there and my brother and I, and one other kid was only three black kids in the whole school. And it was K through 12. Oh. And so I already <laughs> felt different. Yeah. You know, I already stood out. And so then pulling me out of class and I honestly just had this revelation the other day, I've been going through some, some self-reflection <laughs> Mike, but um, you know, I already felt different because of that. And now I'm being pulled out of class. It was different because at home, And in the life that I was living outside of school, people thought it was cute, you know, a little kid with a lisp. And then when I was in school, it's like, okay, maybe this isn't so cool. So I think that it wasn't always a speech piece when I was younger. It was that and then a culmination of things over the years that, you know, kind of messed with my confidence.
0: Yeah, I would imagine being one of three African-American kids in a K through 12.
1: Yeah.
0: That would have a huge effect on you. So with those effects, How did you build your self-confidence and your attitude to do these things you've done? Because you could have very easily just sat back and said, you know what, I'm not going to tackle this. I'm going to blend in.
1: Yeah. So I try to live my life and use my past experiences as stepping stones. I feel like so many people go through life and you have one experience and then you move to the next, whether it's good or bad. And we never take the time to look back and say, what was I supposed to learn from that job? What was I supposed to learn from that relationship? What was I supposed to learn from that experience? And so I am very intentional on looking at every experience in my life, small and big, and saying, what was I supposed to learn from that? And so I try to use those lessons in order to help me to build my confidence that if you can do that, then you can do this. If you can get through that, then you can get through this. And so I would say it's really going back and looking at my experiences and taking those lessons and using them as stepping stones.
0: How often do you look back and evaluate those things? And is that something you consciously do or do you just take time?
1: Consciously, yes. And now it's become a part of who I am. You know, before it was more so intentional. I've always been like one of those people who ask a lot of questions. I believe in self-reflection. So I'm one of those people that when I'm with my friends, we're having a good time and I'm like... What are you most proud of? (laughs) (laughs) What would you do if you weren't afraid? And they're like, oh, here we go, D. (laughs) They call me D. It's just who I am. And so I've done it so much that it's just natural that I look back and I look at the lessons and the experiences that I have. And that's why I decided to write the book that I'm writing.
0: Talk a little bit about the book, what it's about.
1: It started off, the title was My Life, My Stories, Our Lessons. Recently, it changed to Life Doesn't Have to Hurt, Making Sense of the Pain, Making Peace with Its Purpose. And the reason I went that direction, the book is a bunch of short stories about my life and different experiences that I've had. And they were supposed to be about the life-defining moments that I've experienced, like with my brother and the things that I've said and some other things that happened in my life. But it's funny that when I started writing the book, none of those stories flowed. It was the small things that I had never even thought about that came to mind that I was able to pull lessons from.
0: And those came to mind because you were in the process of a book. It wasn't something that you just thought about.
1: Yes, it triggered it. And I mean, it was simple things like I have a book called Comfortable in the Dark, and it talks about how my electricity started um, flickering. And I didn't take the time to figure out why is the light flickering and call an electrician. And so it did that until it went out. And so when it went out, instead of calling an electrician, then because I was too busy, I put a lamp in the bathroom and I would take a shower with my phone flashlight, (laughs) you know, because I didn't want to take the time to call an electrician. My life was just so busy. And so um, I got comfortable in the dark. And so eventually I ended up calling an electrician. It took them 30 minutes to fix the light switch. And even when it was fixed, I would forget it was fixed. And I would still operate the same way until one day it was like, girl, just come on the light. Yeah. <laughs> but I had gotten so comfortable operating in that space of making myself comfortable, you know, that when light was available, I didn't even take advantage of it. So it was different stories like that and different experiences that came to mind that just, um, there were so many lessons in them that if I had never looked at that, I would have missed so many good lessons.
0: I want to talk a little bit about launch and those lessons you've learned and what brought you to launch. To talk a little bit about LAUNCH, what LAUNCH's mission is, what you do, and your role in the organization.
1: Yes, our mission for LAUNCH is to help individuals who have a dream to be able to realize that no matter where you come from, we believe that a dream is not just for an elite few, it's for anybody with a dream. And so we aim to empower communities and individuals through entrepreneurship.
0: And with that, it's not just the classes, but LAUNCH has also opened the kitchen incubator.
1: Yes, we have that kitchen incubator is 10,000 square feet of commercial kitchen space. And we have food truck entrepreneurs. We have caterers. We have people who are in the CPG, which is consumer packaged goods. And they come in, they can come in with an idea and they can come and do development and research, test out their products. They can come and learn. We do coaching. Um, We have two of the best food experts In the world at the kitchen, which is Mark Holland and Pat Rowe. And they have been very instrumental in helping people to move their dreams forward, whether it's a food truck, a catering business, or some kind of packaged good.
0: What would you like to see for launch in terms of success over the next two to five years?
1: I want to continue to move the vision and the mission forward of being able to empower our community through entrepreneurship and give access and Um, make sure that everyone has access to um, the resources that are available to other people. Our main focus is women-owned businesses, Black-owned businesses, and then we have a focus on micro-businesses. And a lot of the Black businesses or minority-owned businesses that we see, unfortunately, they don't have the same access to capital and to the different resources that are available to others. And so we really strive to make sure that everyone has equal access to those resources and an equal opportunity.
0: It's interesting you said that because a couple of weeks ago, I talked to Brian Elrod, who is at Text Request and started a couple other businesses, but he worked in corporate America for 15 years. And he said something really interesting. He said, At that time, I could not afford to be an entrepreneur. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it because Chattanooga has become very known as an entrepreneur incubator at this time. But there's different communities, there's those entrepreneurs who have that whether it's financial resources, whether it's legacy, whether it's institutional knowledge to become an entrepreneur. Not everyone has that available to them. A lot of people have great ideas, but don't know where to start, don't know how to start, don't know how to raise money or finance it themselves, or don't know that when they do raise money that people are either going to want them to pay it back or have an equity position in their company. But launch fills that gap. A couple more questions for you. Who are some of the recognizable launch graduates that you can point to and say, we helped this person out?
1: There's so many, but I'm going to say a couple that are very well known. Ella Livingston, Ella Livingston, she started out through launch. Um, she was a launch graduate. You have Kenyatta Ashford with neutral ground. And he actually was in my class. Was he real? Yes, we went through the same cohort. And to really see his progress from where he started, I'm just amazed. It's very inspiring Ella is amazing. Her chocolate, Cocoa Sante, I don't think I said the name of her business. Tasha Taylor with Nola Girls Gumbo. Mm -hmm. She's one of our upcoming entrepreneurs as well. And she's from New Orleans and she has an amazing, amazing business.
0: That's got to give you a sense of fulfillment that you're along that journey with them. Absolutely. i got a couple more things I want to touch on with you. One of the other things I read that um, you said, and I want to tie this into something you've got coming up in November is that uh, the power of words are very important. You mentioned words earlier. Talk about that a little bit in terms of what words mean to you and why they're so powerful.
1: Yes, words are everything. Words have the ability to um, build someone up or tear someone down. They have the ability to speak death (laughs) or speak life into people. And so I am very intentional with my words. You know, I'm not perfect. I still say things sometimes that I'm like, oh, don't speak that. (laughs) Even if it's about myself, you know, so I believe in affirmations. I believe in speaking life. And I believe that, I mean, we have to make a decision on how we're going to use our words. I believe that each one of us come to life with a word bank that we're given by God. And none of us know how many words are in our word bank. So I think that you have to choose your words wisely because you never know how many words you have left. And so if you were to be told tomorrow that, you know, tomorrow's your last day, like, what would you speak? What would you say to people? What would you say to yourself? Like, how would you use your words? And so I really believe that we just have to be more intentional. Most people who have low confidence, most people who have had bad experiences, sometimes it didn't have anything to do with anything physical someone did to them. It goes back to something someone said to them. Yeah. They broke them down or built them up.
0: That's a powerful message. And I don't know what your talk is going to be in November, but you've got a TED Talk coming up in November. So are words and the power words going to be part of that? If you can give us a sneak peek.
1: Yes, that is a big part of it. The topic is awakening. Do they define the topic? Yes, they do. They tell you what the topic is, but that's all they say. And it's funny that that was the topic because I've had a huge awakening, several awakenings over the last couple of years So I'm ready. I'm going to talk about um, the power of your words. That's a big part of it. But the biggest part of it is talking about how to use your experiences to find your purpose. And you do that through some kind of awakening. Most times when people have an awakening, something major happens, a crisis to bring something to light, to open their eyes. And so I think it just goes right back to looking at those experiences and finding those lessons.
0: So when you were a young kid growing up in Indiana, you did not look into the future and say, this is what I want to do. But it seems to me in talking to you that everything you've done along the path has led you right here.
1: Yes. I wasn't very intentional when I was younger. Honestly, I... I just went with the flow. You know, when I graduated, it wasn't like, oh, I want to go to college. It was like just a known thing. Like you graduate, you go to college. college. I mean, that was the expectation. And so I never was very intentional. Um, I think that I lived a lot of my life in the beginning striving for something. You know, I was striving to get the degree. Then I was striving to get a good job. Then I was striving for this, striving for that. But then it came to a certain point of my life where it was like, okay, I have the degrees, I've had the good jobs, I've had success, but I want more meaning in life. I'm, something is missing. And it was purpose. And when I was able to identify my purpose, I thought that a lot of the things that I had done in life were isolated events. And that's how I looked at them. But I was able to start connecting the dots like, oh, I experienced that because it's helped me here. Or I had to go through that and it wasn't for me. It was for somebody else. And I I truly believe that everything that we go through is meant to help somebody else in the future. You know, it's not just about us. Yes, it helps to build us up. It helps to teach us. We learn from those things. But I think that during our path and on our path and our journey in life, those lessons, especially the major ones, are going to be used to help somebody else.
0: That's such a great way to put that. I appreciate you verbalizing that for me. Uh, Last question for you, and you were talking about as you were growing up, and I want to take you back a bit. Think about this question for a minute. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is really important for a happy life?
1: I would say to make decisions for your future and your tomorrow, not just for today. Yep, that's what I would say. To think for your future and not just for today and instant gratification.
0: Is that how you approach it today?
1: I do. I do a lot of decisions that I make today. It's always with the future in mind. And it hasn't always been that way.
0: And something you said earlier when we were talking about decisions, they have a ripple effect. The decision just doesn't affect you. It affects everything around you.
1: Absolutely. Once you throw a rock in the pond, you... Cannot tell the waves how to ripple. <laughs> you know, you throw it out there and it does what it does. And so that's the same with the words, you know, same with the words, same with decisions. I live by this thing called the 555. Five, five. I remember reading a book years ago. I can't remember who it was by, but I think it was called 101010. 10, 10. But I do 555, five, five, where I think if I say it or if I do it, how am I gonna feel in five hours? How am I gonna feel in five months? How am I gonna feel about it in five years? And if all of those fives are not positive, then I don't do it.
0: It's a great rule of thumb. I've never heard that before. I'm going to steal it from you. It's
1: not always easy to do now. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, not always, always, especially in the moment. But yeah, it, it's been very helpful in helping me to make decisions.
0: Well, Dewan, you've got a very unique journey, an interesting journey. I appreciate you sharing it with us. And uh, thank you for coming on My Morning Cup.
1: Thank you for having me, Mike.
0: Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.